0: From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, this is Earth Eats, and I'm your host, Kate Young. As you walk through the doors, whether you like to cook or you don't like to cook,
1: you feel welcome and things are accessible.
2: What our vision is, is to make make it a better world through breaking bread at the kitchen table, if you will.
0: This week on the show, we speak with co-owners of Bloomington's independent, locally owned kitchen supply store, Goods for Cooks. We hear some of the shop's nearly 50-year history as it's changed hands, updated, and maintained a commitment to quality goods and face-to-face customer service. Plus, a story from Harvest Public Media about Midwestern states attracting large-scale livestock operations, even while rural residents oppose them. That's all just ahead. Stay with us. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. Iowa has almost a thousand concentrated animal feeding operations, commonly called CAFOs. These are facilities that house large numbers of livestock. Other states in the Midwest don't have nearly as many of these operations. But in recent years, laws and programs have paved the way for CAFOs to operate in other states, such as Missouri and Nebraska. As Harvest Public Media's Eva Tesfai reports, that's worrying residents in rural communities.
3: In Cooper County, Missouri, CAFOs are a controversial topic. Susan Williams asked to meet in a small local library, and even in this quiet atmosphere, she's nervous about people overhearing the conversation.
0: Don't want the whole town to hear me.
3: (laughs) A retired elementary school principal and a farmland owner, Williams became involved in the controversy back in 2018. That's when a large hog operation called Tipton East planned on moving in less than a mile away from her house. The size of the operation, about 8,000 hogs, concerned her, especially since she grew up on a small hog farm.
0: Just the smell and the waste that you had was tremendous with that, and I couldn't imagine what it would be like with that many hogs.
3: So Williams and some other residents brought their concerns, including what it would do to air and water quality, to Cooper County's health department. The department responded, creating an ordinance to regulate emissions and the spread of manure from CAFOs. The next year, the Missouri Senate passed legislation preventing counties from enacting rules on CAFOs that are stricter than the states. Cooper County and Cedar County sued over the law, taking the case all the way to the Missouri Supreme Court, which has yet to issue a ruling. Laws that prevent local opposition to farm operations are common, says Loka Ashwood, a rural sociologist at the University of Kentucky. We see that across the country. She says there are a lot of lawsuits regarding CAFOs in the Midwest. And in these lawsuits, the CAFOs are more likely to win. That's where people are fighting the hardest. To try to defend their property rights, but they're also losing the most. Other farm groups argue CAFOs can be an economic boon for rural communities. Missouri Farmers Care is a group that wants to see agriculture grow in the state. It has a program that designates counties with the title Agri Ready. Counties have to agree to a set of requirements that will make the county more welcoming to farm operations. Mike Deering sits on the board of Missouri Farmers Care and is also the vice president of Missouri Cattlemen's Association. He says CAFOs are net positive for the state.
0: It's food security, it's the food supply chain, and to make sure that we are keeping that local and not having to import, import, import. So we have to encourage growth.
3: In Nebraska, the State Department of Agriculture oversees a similar designation called Livestock Friendly Counties. It will work with the county to develop zoning laws and permitting that makes it more accommodating to livestock production. Ashlyn Busick is with the Socially Responsible Agriculture Project, an organization that helps communities protect themselves from the negative impacts of CAFOs. She works in Missouri and Nebraska and says welcoming CAFOs hurts small livestock producers. When a
0: county is accommodating
1: for the big ag industry, who continues to get pushed out of the market. And guess who can hardly stand to live on their farms anymore because of the stench
3: of the CAFOs just across the fence. The Nebraska Department of Agriculture says attracting livestock operations of all sizes is a focus. And they add a livestock-friendly county is more appealing for new projects. Dodge County, Nebraska has that designation. And Costco opened a poultry operation there back in 2019. Jessica Coulterman is the plant's director of administration. She says Costco chose Nebraska in part because of the warm reception.
0: The other thing that they were really impressed with was the the welcome that they received from the state and the local governments, and also from the business leaders in the area.
3: Back in Cooper County, Missouri, farm owner Susan Williams is still waiting for the state's Supreme Court to rule on whether local governments can regulate CAFOs. But whatever the ruling is, she says residents have to keep paying attention.
0: The fight's not ever going to be over. I think this public is always going to have to be vigilant to make sure that the public's interests are taken to, into account just as much as any industry.
3: But she's also optimistic because she says now people are more informed about KFOS. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Eva Tesfai.
0: Harvest Public Media is a collaboration of public media newsrooms in the Midwest and Great Plains. Find more at harvestpublicmedia.org.
1: Garlic rocker, the Y peelers, the original microplanes, wood spoons, the fish spatula, the scoops,
0: the tongs, The whisks, the bubble whisk, spring whisk, traverse whisk, flisk, the silicone scrubbies,
1: gnat-made scrubbers, little linked chain meal scrubbers. If
0: you're into food and cooking, which you might be since you are listening to Earth Eats, you're probably familiar with those high-end cooking supply stores like Williams-Sonoma or Sir La Table or maybe the big box variety like Pottery Barn or Bed Bath & Beyond are more in line with your budget.
1: Potato masher,
0: mortar and pestles.
1: <gasps> bag plastic bars, bag dryer. Bees wrap in a roll. The little piggy style bacon grease bin. Salad spinners, lobster or crab crackers. Shrimp deveiner. Strawberry hauler, stem gem. The
0: avocado keeper, shears, kitchen shears. Here in Bloomington, Indiana, we're lucky to have an independent, locally-owned retailer featuring high-quality kitchen equipment, specialty foods like imported jams and mustards, fancy vinegars, and gourmet pasta. Chef knives,
1: Asian vegetable prep knives, pro thermometers, your glass scale, the smoking gun, lots of metal straws, glass straws, The atomizer, you're shaking tins or shaking glasses. A waiter's corkscrew, a simple
0: corkscrew. The shop is Goods for Cooks. It's located in an historic building on the courthouse square in downtown Bloomington. And the business itself has quite a history. I visited Goods for Cooks recently and spoke with two of the current co-owners, Sam Eibling and George Huntington. We talked about the various iterations of the shop since its founding in the 1970s, what sets them apart from the national chains, and how they weathered the most difficult days of the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's jump right into our conversation.
1: My name is Samantha Eibling and I am co-owner of Goods for Cooks.
2: My name is George Huntington and I am co-owner of Goods for Cooks. Sam and I also happen to be brother and sister.
0: You might know George from his previous role as the general manager of Blooming Foods Co-op for over 20 years. I started by asking Sam and George to tell the story of how they became owners of Goods for Cooks.
2: I had uh, left my previous employment and was debating whether I was ready for retirement or not. took some long walks in the woods actually went to Scotland and hiked the Scottish Highlands also and pondered my future, got back to Bloomington and was reading the local paper and saw that the former owner and his wife wanted to wanted to sell the business and I thought well I've always admired this store the store began, Charlotte Zetlow started the store back when I was a senior in high school and I've shopped here my entire life and I thought well that would be kinda cool but knowing that I was long in the tooth maybe I was hoping I could find someone of a like mind with fewer (laughs) years under the hood if you will and the lovely lady to my left came to mind so I approached Samantha and her husband Doug one evening went over to their house and we I don't know had some snacks and a glass of wine or something and I asked them to consider it and she can take it from there because I don't know how that conversation went other than they agreed to do it.
1: (laughs) We had actually returned to Bloomington after about 13, 14 years of traveling around and and doing different jobs. And one of the jobs I had had while away was working for a privately owned kitchen store in Kansas City. So it was quite a large venture there um, in an older building like this, but very similar in that she stocked it full to the brim of different kitchens, items as food and even some more gardening things. So I had some experience with that. And then George had had the experience on grocery side of things and also running his own businesses. So it felt very comfortable as though almost the exact business that we needed popped up because we had the right experience. But we're also both passionate about food cooking. We gardened quite a bit growing up. We were both hilltop gardeners, local hilltop gardeners when um, Barbara Shiluka had the program, and um, George continues to farm. He's an organic farmer, so this, everything just kind of fell into place, and it worked out
0: for us to purchase. So, You mentioned that Charlotte Zitlow was the one who started the business, Can you give me a summary of the history of the store? Uh, Yeah, we are,
2: Sam and I and her husband, Doug, are the fifth set of owners. Charlotte Zitlow and Marilyn Schultz were the founders of the business back in 1973. And I think they owned the store for a decade, maybe. Uh, I think they were in three different locations. At one point, they made a decision to dipped their toes in the mauling of America, if you will, and they moved out to College Mall, which was a relatively new phenomenon back then in the uh, early 70s. Discovered pretty quickly that it wasn't a terribly good fit, uh, just didn't feel right, so they moved back down to the square. Second owner was Bob Swanson, I believe was Bob's last name, and I think Bob ran the shop for roughly a decade. And then Bob turned around and Sold the business to Beth Hollingsworth, who is still in town, as is Charlotte. They both still come in their former stores. <laughs> and then when Beth decided to sell, she sold to Andrew and Charlotte Apple, who are the couple that we purchased the store from. So that is sort of the ownership history of this store, the the short version.
0: Yeah,
1: and interestingly, the store has shifted slightly in what it has meant to people, I think, as well as what
0: they've carried. Charlotte and Marilyn were very into cooking. Sam says Beth was more interested in tabletop, and the most recent previous owner, Andrew, was an engineer, and he was much more scientific-minded in the tools and equipment that he brought in.
2: I think that the store has kept its core focus, but has genuinely reflected the owner's tastes, desires, loves, the things they like, and it's worked.
0: Yeah, well, that kind of leads into my next question, which is, what what does the store mean to you, and what is your vision of what you want it to be in the community?
2: Sam's very eloquent at uh, explaining that, so I will briefly tell you that we share a belief that food is a a common denominator for all of us and the fact that we sell good food and equipment to prepare said food is something that makes us happy there's a quote by uh, Tony Bourdain that, that we like a lot about sharing food with people and it sort of brings people together and I think that's part of why we do what we do what our vision is is to make make it a better world through sharing breaking bread at the kitchen table, if you will.
0: Sam says that when people in the business world ask them what they want to accomplish with the business, the assumption is usually that they want to make money. But she says that their motivations extend beyond financial gain. Stewarding the shop in a way in which we create connection with people
1: and bring more people to the table, not only literally for them to be bringing people to the table, but that as you walk through the doors, Whether you like to cook or you don't like to cook, you feel welcome and things are accessible. We carry things that are are good, you know, so whether it's a $3 item, a $0.99 item, or a $350 item, we believe that if that matches your skills and your needs, that that will enhance your cooking in your life, and we hope that it does so. And so for us, whoever walks through the door, we look at them as a lifelong um, connection where hopefully, you know, maybe they come in for coffee-making implements now, but later on they get into cooking um, more complex things. And then they, a lot of our customers leave Bloomington as the whole point of this town is to get an education and leave. Um, But then they come back too and they bring their kids back and their kids come to college here. So we have people that come in that went to college in the 70s, 80s and 90s and came here and then they come back and their kids come back. And so for us that that creating those relationships are important to us. Um, And we think it'll eventually allow the business to sustain itself in a climate when, you know, ordering online and, you know, shipping everything to places is what is pretty common. We think that what people really do want is connection. So that's important to us.
2: That's one of the things that resonates with me is I'm an old school retailer that believes customer service is what you want to do for people. Uh, that you build lifelong connections, like Sam said, with your customers. And one of the ways you do that is by meeting them where they are and meeting their needs. And so that's something that we really strive to do here. And I think we do a pretty good job. We drop the ball once in a while. But uh, overall, I think people are pretty happy with that human interaction as opposed to punching a button on their computer screen.
0: Yeah, which makes me think about staffing, too, because my experience is that You have some long-time staff who really seem to know the products and can really talk to people and help.
2: We should probably mention that that's one of the things that helped Sam and I sort of make the decision to jump in and, and purchase goods for cooks is Andrew, the previous owner, was very generous and allowed both of us to be put on the payroll and actually work the store to get a feel for what it would be like before we made a final decision about purchasing the store and one of the things that we noticed is the observation you just made that the the staff that he had on hand at the time were very knowledgeable and so it was important to us that they help be part of the bridge as we transitioned if we made the decision to purchase and we were we were able to talk to them prior to making the purchase to find out if indeed they were interested in in staying on. And we were pleased that they said yes, now we've met you and we were concerned about what new owners might be like, we were preparing resumes to move on, but we've met you guys, we like you guys, we'd love to stick around. So it was very gratifying and they, they made it work. They really did, they took the pressure off of us because they knew a lot of the vendors they knew the flow of the business. There were just a lot of little details that it's hard to walk in cold and learn, and, and they knew the answers.
1: And when we look for people, you you don't have to know everything about food. There's just simply no way to know everything. Um, it's such a vast subject, and there are so many niches that you can get involved with. We let them know that the thing they most need to be is curious and willing to follow up with people because you just simply won't know the answer to everything. And often our customers know more than we do about the particular thing they're looking to do. So we learn quite a bit from the customers. There's always lots of interesting conversations happening in the
0: shop.
2: It's, it's one of the joys of being here is you do, I mean, you provide knowledge to your shoppers, but it works both ways. They teach us a lot every day. And actually people that are experimenting in the kitchen and create things often bring them in for us to taste. <laughs> so that's one of the <laughs> one of the bonuses, you know. <laughs>
0: yeah, can you give an example of, of a time recently when you felt like you were learning something or discovered something from an interaction like that?
1: Often it it often has to do with spices. People will come in and ask for something. And then you're like, oh, "What are you doing with that?" And you know, um, and sometimes we'll have it, and sometimes we won't. But we have one one of our favorite customers comes in, and his passion is cheesecake, and he's constantly testing out different crusts, different flavors. So it's not a hard thing to sample. I'm trying to think of something recently that we have learned from customers. A lot of customers are into fermenting, and so they'll share their tips: what bottles explode, what ones don't. You know, like. Often we get to hear the accidents and the fiascos are great learning experiences and people share what happened or didn't happen well. A lot of uh, pandemic discussion around cocktailing and bread making, so there's, a, <laughs> there's always good discussions happening.
0: I'm speaking with Sam Eibling and George Huntington. They're co-owners of Goods for Cooks in Bloomington, Indiana. After a short break, we'll talk about how they decide what to select for their specialty food section, and how their small shop weathered the COVID-19 shutdowns in 2020. Stay with us. I'm Kate Young. This is Earth Eats. And my guests today are Sam Eibling and George Huntington of Goods for Cooks in downtown Bloomington. Let's return to our conversation. How do you, with the food items, how do you make make decisions about what kind of things you're going to carry? Because, you know, you're not a grocery store. You're not filling that role. And you have limited space. So what's kind of the criteria that you're looking for? Is it just sort of a collection of what, different people have recommended or what people have come in asking for.
2: On the food side of things, several of the items we carry came from customer recommendations. Have you ever had this mustard? Well, no, I haven't. Well, and then they'll bring you a sample and you are well, that's good. Then you do a little research and try and find out if you can source it and you bring it in. And it turns out it is good mustard and <laughs> the two, the, the customer and myself are not the only ones that want it. I put it on the shelf and it sells. So. We were lucky in that uh, Andrew, the former owner, uh, is the one who made the decision to bring the most recent uh, spate of food in. He took the the space on that side of the hall, became available, and Andrew thought, I'm going to go for it. And so he brought stuff in. And for whatever reason, we've become known for olive oil, vinegars, higher end pastas, we have some some nice cheeses but it's it's a battle we fight sometimes because we get a lot of people that talk about these wonderful nice soft cheeses fresh cheeses that tend not to have a very long shelf life and so you bring them in and they don't move quickly enough and so it can be a little frustrating but you try anyway jellies and jams have been very popular at this store honey is another item that people like to buy here. We have a smattering of sauces that you can't find at other stores. Mustard is a little niche category for us. We sell a lot of uh, bakery items, things to decorate baking with.
1: There is some niche categories in baking that's challenging to find. Um, Glycerin, for example, makes your royal icing smoother, citric acid, things like that, gargum or, you know, little additives that people use in professional baking. And they're obviously over the past few years, people have been very much into baking. But then we'll carry things like um, almond paste and, and things you might see more in European baking. So it's, it's nice to be able to have those things for customers when they come in. And we don't always hit the mark, but it, it can be a little more challenging to find them in the regular groceries now because things have kind of gotten limited. The selections seem to be more limited.
2: This, the supply chain thing you read about is real for a lot of folks, including us and so availability is challenging sometimes.
0: Yeah, I was gonna ask about that, how, how that's been impacting your...
2: Pretty severely for a while. It seems to, it kind of ebbs and flows, to be very honest with you. Sometimes fulfillment rates are very good. Other times we've had as much as half of the things we order not show up, which can be frustrating. <laughs> a lot of the items we carry on both sides of the store, if you will, both the hard goods side and the food side, our imported items, and things have been hung up in the ports quite a bit. And so you'll you'll call one of your vendors, and they'll say, "Well, it's here, but it's in a container <laughs> uh, on a dock, and we're not sure when it's going to get here to the warehouse." So it's it's very real. One of my favorite stories was there was a, a vendor that called us and asked us why we hadn't paid an invoice, and this was. Uh, nine months into the pandemic. And so we did the research and discovered that indeed we had paid the invoice and we'd mailed it months ago. And so we called them and told them, and they said, well, where did you mail it? And we said, well, to the mailing address we had on file. And they said, oh, well, we haven't been in the office for six months. And I said, oh, then you need to tell us to mail it someplace else. (laughs) So yeah.
0: So you've you've touched on this a little bit, but I would definitely like to hear more about how how did you experience the start of the pandemic and you know, those initial kind of shutdown situations and how long had you owned the business when spring of twenty
1: twenty hit? We took over in September of twenty seventeen. So we were a few years in and we we're pretty current with news. And so we had been watching what was happening in Europe and a lot of our vendors are in Europe. And so we knew that something was coming over. But when Bloomington shut down, we were kind of in the donut hole, the gray, as far as because we had supplies that were essential to cooking and feeding yourself and food, there was this kind of non-clear way of do you shut down completely or do you not. So what we ended up doing was when Bloomington shut down basically everything, we shut the doors to the public, but our core team, whoever wanted to continue working, came in and we essentially just started hustling and filling any orders that came through. We set up a temporary website and put the basics up there and were able to sustain for a couple of months. We were, we were closed to the public for two months. We opened up the weekend of Memorial Day that year and people in turn have been very supportive. We had several people that would call us and say, can you bring me coffee and olive oil? And then when it became clear that nobody could find flour, we were Finding it, however, we could and had those sorts of things. But people were asking for tinned fish and pasta and flour and coffee and and those sorts of things. And then we had I, we had some really interesting experiences where college students were now stuck in their homes and hadn't really cooked. So I you know I had one person call me up and say I I don't really have any pots and pans. What's the one thing I could get that'll get me through. So we sold her a multi-purpose pan and then delivered it. And we were doing free deliveries. If you lived within, you know, 10, 15 minutes, we have somebody that lives on one side of town or another. And we were taking them after work and dropping them at people's porches. And people were really grateful for it. So it was actually kind of fun and that connection was there for us. It was
2: gratifying, too, because we had a lot of very loyal shoppers who wanted to support us, and we were, I think we decided, and we took a look at the numbers, we were doing between 30 and 40 percent of our projected sales with the front doors locked. So we we were really thankful that people remembered us and wanted to make sure that we were okay. And then we, in turn, were able to continue to employ the people that wanted to work and make payroll. So it, the whole thing worked out pretty well for us.
0: So before you hadn't had an online shop, like there wasn't online ordering. So so that was something you had to set up. Yeah, so we're not
1: computerized. So we don't have a POS system. So we price things with a hand pricing gun, and we ring it up with a relatively old school register. And we count our inventory by hand, and it's worked for 50 years, and (laughs) we've kept it that way. But that meant when we wanted to maybe put something online, we literally had to enter it all
0: by hand. Once the brick-and-mortar store opened back up, they did not keep the online ordering. They found it tricky to maintain accurate inventory when people are purchasing items from inside the store they also noticed that most of their customers were ready to come back in.
2: As, as soon as they felt comfortable leaving the house, they sort of craved that human interaction and wanted to come in and shop in person, is what we discovered. It, it it didn't evaporate totally, but...
1: We did curbside and did some deliveries for at least another, like a full year, I would say, strongly. We still, every once in a while, get somebody that calls that needs something,
0: so we'll do that. What. Did you learn about people's cooking habits during the pandemic through what they purchased?
2: This is my observation, and I'm sure Sam has some too, but I I found there were basically two groups uh, that we encountered mostly. Some were folks who didn't do a lot of cooking and were interested in learning how to cook. And so we worked very hard to explain to them that they didn't need to buy the most expensive thing on our shelf that as a beginning cook, maybe this is what you'd want to use. And then we also had the second group of shopper, not the beginner. They were people who knew how to cook, but it was time to sort of upgrade. I'm spending a lot more time in the kitchen and I've been using this knife for the last 25 years and it's nicked here and it's time to, I'm going to get myself, I'm going to treat myself and get myself a new nice chef's knife. And so those were the two groups that I felt we interacted with an awful lot, were the the newbies and the ones who were already knew how to do it but wanted to upgrade a little bit.
1: I think the, the depth behind that is that there were a lot of people that suddenly had more time on their hands, or they didn't have more time on their hands, but things shifted their focus and their priorities. And so there became this freedom maybe to explore some depth within their cooking. Bread baking was the most obvious one, but people were working in fermentation and more complex recipes or uh, even mixing of cocktails and sitting and enjoying what company they could have. So it was really interesting to see people really delve deep into certain things that they were interested in. And then initially, the thinking was this was gonna be over within a few months. We obviously were in a good business for the pandemic if there is such a thing, people needed what we were selling. So there was the idea that when the pandemic was over, you know, it, things would go back to normal, people would start ordering out and going to the restaurants, and that because the pandemic has been so prolonged, it didn't happen. So people got then that much more in depth. And so the habits were formed of now we're setting our table. So we've seen even a shift in where people are buying dishes and placemats, and I thought paper napkins were going to be huge. We sell a ton of paper napkins, but it was actually the cloth napkins that became much bigger sellers over the pandemic. So people wanted that ritual. They wanted to comfort themselves through a meal, through food. So it has been interesting to see that it's gone on long enough for it to become habitual
0: and continue in people's lives. Yeah, I I would love to hear a little bit more about your approach to things like dishes and linens and some of the just really beautiful items for kitchen and home that that I notice in your store. To be
1: different from big box stores and to be unique and have a unique collection, you need to apply to be with a lot of different vendors. Same with the food. And so if you want a selection in the shop, you have to have, I mean, we probably have 250 vendors. And not all of them are ordered from every week. Maybe you only order from one once a year. But to get that mix and and to have some creativity there, that's the place that you have to go, which means a lot of paperwork and a lot of behind-the-scenes work to get things in. But I think it pays off. The, The other thing that we're because we're not Pottery Barn or Williams-Sonoma or Bed Bath & Beyond, we don't have the capacity or the space to stock things like place settings, but we're also in this time in which that's no longer the norm. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people maybe only ask for casual dishes when they start setting up their homes, but I think particular to Bloomington and maybe some other college towns or more art centered towns people just like very unique combinations and so we find that you know people will buy a ton of small little bowls and dishes that maybe don't match yes a lot of cat dishes a lot of <laughs> we've dishes with ninjas on them and dragons and you know uh, a lot of japanese ceramics and it's just been fun to put those colors together to look from different vendors and see what sort of the spring and the fall and summer coloring is and then bring it in and mix and match it and I think people like that as a matter of fact when we get sets of things in whether it be towels even hot sauces we tend to break them apart because they'll sit in a set in the shop forever because nobody wants to buy what you tell them is a set. (laughs) And I think that's a very Bloomington, this, you know, we know our own minds, we know our style, we know what we want, and I'm not buying a striped towel, I only wanted a polka dot, so, you know.
2: Sam makes a couple of good points, and one of them is we're not afraid to try things. Sometimes you have to, it's a leap of faith. You're like, oh, that looks pretty interesting, I think people might like that. And usually she's got good taste, so usually she's right. If she's not, we discount it, move it on down the road, and try something else. So you just have to sort of have an entrepreneurial spirit, if you will, and, and believe in yourself and your gut. If your gut tells you it'll move, chances are it will. We taste a lot of the food that we bring in, uh, and that informs some of the decisions we make there. Uh, we get samples. The other point that Sam made that is a challenge from our side of the fence, if you will, it it is a lot more work to do. A lot of stores, a lot of shops have a dozen vendors. Large warehouses, and they carry a lot of things, but they carry the same things that everybody carries. And it's pretty easy to do the ordering because you tap into their vast warehouse and you can order everything you need. As Sam said, we're dealing with a lot of small vendors and I think 250 is not an exaggeration on how many different people we deal with. And it just takes a lot more time and effort to do that.
1: But that help has helped us because in the pandemic, when one place was out of something, we knew two others that we could get it from. And, you know, it, it didn't always work out in our favor. We got things delivered after the holidays that we planned on selling during the holidays. and. But, you know, then you have a sense of humor and you're like, well, we don't have to order that this year. So, you know, it's just you kind of move on. And, and ultimately, it's if you notice, we change a lot of stuff on the hard good side. We move things. And often if you move something, then people buy it because they see it. So it's sometimes it's just a matter of refreshing your displays and changing some stuff. Or Yeah.
0: Yeah. I was thinking about that. How important having. Those unique items and different collections coming in for seasons, both for your storefront window, because it is a window shopping area on the square. So you want people to want to come in. And then also just that kind of what you're hit with when you walk in the door. Seeing something you hadn't seen before is going to make you linger. Yes. That's our evil plot. (laughs) (laughs) And I was also thinking about in terms of the food that you carry, diamond kosher salt will bring me into the store. <laughs> so when I run out of that, I, I know where to go. And then I'm going to browse, and I'm going to see something I love. And Well, and that came out of Samin's book. Sam is referring to Samin Nosrut's popular book, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, which recommends using diamond kosher salt in the recipes. So as it became popularized by her book,
1: and then we take a look around, and we're like, there, you can't, Find it. There's. It's nowhere to be found it was in Bloomington. Very challenging
2: to find a supplier. For yeah, that one. Then it, it took. Did, it probably it took not. us like four months
1: to <laughs> yeah. find some place that we could buy it. So it's just. And we always have it in the back of our mind. Like, okay, we want to get this. The other thing we have is castor sugar, which that
0: that was the other thing that yeah. I've come here for. <laughs> you can't find castor sugar anywhere.
1: And I'm sure you could put it in your blender, but if you blitz it too much then it's powdered sugar. So there's just this very fine line of, you know.
0: Yes, exactly. (laughs) I'm speaking with Sam Eibling and George Huntington of Goods for Cooks in Bloomington, Indiana. Stay with us to hear about the built-in problems of selling cookware designed to last for generations and learn the best image to place on an item if you want it to sell in Bloomington. We'll be back after a short break. This is Earth Eats. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young, and my guests are co-owners of Goods for Cooks, Samantha Eibling and George Huntington. What other services do you offer? We have knife sharpening, and we can
1: repair some small nicks or rather grind down some small nicks. We also will deliver still to people's homes within reason, of course. We can ship out of the shop. We do gift wrap. The gift wrap is really popular over the holidays too. And we also do gift baskets. We can shop for you. We do registries. They're old school, mind you. They're not online for all your relatives, but often older generations like calling into the shop. So that's how we still do it. But yeah, it's, there's basically, if we can do it for you with without it being too burdensome, we're going to try
0: to do it. And sort of helping people shop, like if they have a brother-in-law who they know is really into food, but they're not really into food. (laughs) They don't know what to get. Often it's just a conversation, you know, whether
1: it's the person looking for something or for family. We just ask them, like, what do they like to cook? Or, you know, what are they interested in? And, And that usually reveals the best thing to recommend for them.
0: Yeah I know for me as someone who does cook a lot I our our kitchen is stocked like we have the things we need so when we come in it's really browsing or something special we've discovered that we must have or like you said some of those just like beautiful items that you can't resist because they're so We'll see Lovely, if our, our like plan a bowl has worked, right? <laughs> yeah. Because well,
1: we're very aware of the fact that if you're selling good quality items and people purchase them, they're not going to come back to replace them, right? So they haven't bought an inexpensive pan that's going to fall apart within three years. Right. So they've bought something that may be a generational piece, like an iron pan or a higher end pan, and so they're not coming back for that. What they're coming back for is conversation. Is the you know different towel that we now have that wasn't there two weeks ago or maybe they're upgrading a piece of equipment but it's it's more about the actual conversation around food and gathering than it is around maybe replacing that pan or they give that away and now they're getting their you know top of the line but yeah it's it can be kind of an issue because if you sell everybody stuff that really stands the test of time then you have to have other things to bring people in yeah, and we
0: definitely come in for gifts.
2: I'd say that's that's one of the things that works very well for us. If you sell someone a nice piece of equipment or some really good food and they like it, they'll come back in and they said, I want to give this to my brother-in-law. Mm-hmm. He really, you know, and so that, it works. Yeah. It's a referral system, if you will. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: What, what are your most popular items or maybe categories of items? What do
2: you think on the food side? On the food side, we, you laughed when I said, or you, I think you validated my oh vinegar yeah, thing. Yeah, um, the, the oils and vinegars do very well for us, and I think part of the reason is that we do have a tasting station. And if somebody says, which one of these is best? We say, well, I like these two or three, would you like to try them? And they're able to taste them, and it makes a big difference. And so I'd have to say that um, of, of the categories that we have over on the food side, we're, we're well known for the oils and vinegars, and people do come in to buy them. We also yeah.
1: have a Steve. So if you, can, if you can get a Steve, who is the most enthusiastic person you'll ever meet about selling vinegar and oil, then you, that will be your best category. We have had, I have had people come in, I had a woman come in and she showed me a picture of an oil bottle on her phone. And she said, I don't know why I need to buy this, but I was here a year ago and it's been on my phone and I'm here now and I need to buy this. And I go, oh, you met Steve. And she's like, what? (laughs) You had to have met Steve. There's no other explanation. So yeah. I would say jams and jellies too probably bring in a lot of people, especially the ones from Europe because we have quite a contingency of Europeans in town due to the university and they're, you know, just to see the like sort of joy on people's face when they see their favorite marmalade from childhood, it's it's really rewarding. There is a lot of opinions about marmalade, too, exactly how coarse or fine it should be um, and which ones are best, so depending upon the European you mean. So, yeah, that you learn, you learn things like that.
0: Really
1: interesting. Yeah, I mean, it just, and even, we have a lot more Swedish food now, uh, Nordic food, and when people come in from that area of the world, they get super excited, and we have something called cat's tongues around the holidays, which is a chocolate, it's sort of... I don't know it looks like a dog bone kind of so it's in that kind of shape and they call them cat's tongues and one of our Hungarian friends came in and was like literally got giddy I mean it is not a high-end product it is not gourmet it is what you got in your stocking as a kid and it just like
0: that thrilled him to no end so yeah so the nostalgia yes and finding something that you can't find here yeah yeah that's nice
2: Holidays are a lot of fun for us. Uh, we we work really hard. As a matter of fact, that's what I'm working on when we're done talking today. We, we place our Christmas orders in sometimes hard goods as early as February. <laughs> Most of the food orders go in in April and May. But it's fun to find those things that help people relive those joys from the holiday season. And it's really rewarding. Like Sam said, when people come in and they go, Oh my god I haven't seen this since I was a child this is so great that you've got it
0: Yeah and you know even if you're not nostalgic for it because you grew up with it just the packaging is different and it's you know it looks old world and you want to that in someone's stocking or you know have it as a gift so yeah i think it's having those candies and different kinds of baked goods and it's really nice yeah i'm sure it is
1: fun to shop for (laughs) (laughs) it can be i have to say in february the last thing i want to see is anything with a santa claus or a snowman or red and green it's a lot after the holiday season but on the on the hard good side in bloomington if it has a cat on it it will sell and I mean, like I cannot tell you how many things we look at in catalogs, and we're like, well, it'll sell it has a cat so we we there's a lot of cat people in Bloomington they're also dog people, but dog people are picky because it has to be their breed. Right. A cat can just be any cat essentially, so cats on mugs, cats on towels, cats on dishes <laughs> so that's huge, but kitchen linens are a category that's grown wildly and my experience when I worked in Kansas City, she had three aisles of towels. And what I feel the important thing about linens is that most of the time they're affordable. So no matter what's happening in the economy or in your life, if, you know, you can't afford to replace pots and pans, but you can get, a seven dollar towel and your kitchen feels different. We sell a lot of snarky towels, yeah. some inappropriate towels, but I Abrons. yes aprons, which is such like a kind of a old fashioned thing, right? I mean, do do you see a lot of your friends answering the door in an apron? No, but we sell aprons like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> so I think it's it's also that nostalgia of you know your grandmother wore one, your mom wore one, you you put one on, and it's it's a huge gift item. But we. Yeah we sell a lot of iron. We're very much into purchasing things and selling things that'll last. So iron and quality knives, whether it's a lower priced or, yeah, those sell quite well. We also love to bring in local vendors. So we have woodworkers that do a lot of our cutting boards, turn wood bowls. We have, um, Chris Bush's pottery and uh, Frank Pearsall's bowls are just gorgeous. And, and those sell as well as anything we get from a larger manufacturer or so. And I think especially in Bloomington, people know the value and appreciate handmade,
0: well-done things. So, And would want to support a local artist. Yes. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to add or say about... The store or what it means to you? or Well,
2: all I want to do is pay a compliment to my sister who makes it a joy to come to work every day. So, you know, it's, it's kind of special. I chose well when I chose a partner. So I'm happy. They say you shouldn't go in business with family, but there are exceptions to rules like that.
1: That's really nice. We do a good job, I think, of complimenting each other. And we've We've always liked each other. <laughs> so we we hung out before. We're different in age. We have, a, we have a large family that spans generations. And so it's always been easy to get along with each other. And we like similar things and have similar aesthetics. So
0: we tease each other, but that's okay. <laughs> well, thanks so much. I really appreciate this. Thank you. We appreciate Our you coming pleasure. in. Yeah. That was George Huntington and Samantha Ibling. They are brother and sister co owners of Goods for Cooks, along with Sam's husband, Doug Eibling. Goods for Cooks is located in downtown Bloomington on the west side of the historic Courthouse Square. George Huntington served as general manager of Blooming Foods Co op from 1994 to 2015. Samantha Eibling also currently teaches yoga with Bloomington Yoga Collective, also in downtown Bloomington. You can find more information on our website, eartheats.org.
3: is produced and edited by Kate Young with help from Aebon Binder, Alex Chambers, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Samantha G, Abraham Hill, Peyton Whaley, Harvest Public Media, and me, Daniella Richardson.
0: Special thanks this week to Samantha Ibling, George Huntington, and everyone at Goods for Cooks.
3: Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artist at Universal Production Music. Our executive producer is John Bailey.